Hello, I'm Chris Hudson. And I'm Mopanim Pandawire. And welcome to FIS's Freight and Commodity Podcast on Wednesday, the 21st of September. On this week's podcast, we have a live report from the European Battery Raw Materials Conference, an interview with Kieran Walsh on the pulp and paper market. We put the spotlight on geopolitical events that could shape markets going into 2023 and a look at the market movements of our major freight and commodity markets. Uh, first, let's take a look at the indexes, though, what movements we've seen in the past two weeks since the last podcast. Uh, that's being Tuesday 6th September versus yesterday, Tuesday 20th September. Well, if you look at the dry freight markets, Cape Panamax's Supermaxes uh, on the group routes, those are the 5TC, 40TC, 10TC. Well, Cape size, uh, if you looked at Tuesday, the 6th of September index was just above $6,000 a day. Uh, and now yesterday, closing 16540 a move of well, $10,500 a day there, 174% increase up. And we're now back at those levels closer to where we've seen for the kind of year to date at 16,561 if you're interested and also good thing to have a note on terms of volumes uh, on the individual routes the c3 and the c5 we've seen some significant movement movements up volume wise year on year c3 is up 29 percent having done 3550 lots uh, and the c5 46,670 lots up 106 percent so good news there for the individual routes on the panamaxes that's moved 11,379 to 16,870 or up 5,491 or 48.3%. Uh, and again, almost closer, almost there on the year-to-date volume, 21,108 so far year-to-date uh, on the values. And on the Supermaxes, 16,355 moving uh, slightly up, 17,382 closing yesterday, uh, two-week movement. Uh, just up 6.3%, uh, and still well further away there on the on the year to date 24,823 on that. On the iron ore, 62%, we've seen a slight movement down, or 0.7%, uh, closing yesterday $96.65, um, nowhere near the uh, year to date value of $129, and absolutely nowhere near those highs we saw of over $200 uh, last year. Uh, but some good volumes to report again if you're looking at. Uh, Year-on-year year movements we've seen in terms of just the iron ore futures up 30% on volumes. And that's uh, 1.7 billion tonnes just over. On the options, we've seen an even bigger increase, 44% up on last year, 387 million. Uh, and obviously, both together, uh, we are at levels which we saw uh, in terms of total year in the last couple of years. I think the year two years ago, 2.1 billion, and last year, 2.4 billion. And we're now already at 2.1. We're not at the end of September, and we've got three more months to go. So some very healthy volumes there in the iron ore market to report. On the oil and oil products, Brent crude down to $90.25, but we've had news out this morning of uh, the mobilisation of Russian reservists or partial mobilisation, so that has had an effect, moving oil markets up again. And the sing 0.5%. Uh, this was a close yesterday uh, on the front future on the FAS report, $641.95 on that sing 0.5% there. So no surprise that that has also come off as Brent crude has come off over those two weeks. On the tankers side, we've seen movements up across the board. T3Cs moved from 70 world scale 73 to 99.91. We're much higher than the year-to-date value there, which is just above 50 world scale. TC2, 215.56 was two weeks ago, now above 300. Uh, the year-to-date there, 247.70. And TC5 uh, also moving up less so, 310. 
having now closed yesterday 319.29 world scale, uh, much above the year-to-date value there, 226.75. And then finally, on the last two ones, European Steel, that's uh, slid slightly as well. now closing yesterday, 7.42. But another point in terms of volume, some very healthy volumes there again. If you're looking at the uh, CME EU HRC, that's up 171% year on year, having moved above the uh, 530,000 mark. Uh, A good movement, uh, again, growing steel in the US market is up 7%. And also for the scrap there, uh, bushling scrap up 71% year on year and the LME steel scrap up 62%. 2%. And finally, the EUAs, the European carbon markets, that was two weeks ago on the 6th of September, €69.88, Euros and closed yesterday at €71.14. Euros Next, a look at major events that are happening around the world that might be useful to you. Um, the UK, as you know, had a bank holiday and closed for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, Her Majesty the Queen. And some people do ask, what does this mean for the markets? Uh, well, nothing much apart from the fact that London Stock Exchange closed during the day of the funeral. Uh, but interestingly, London Meadow Exchange, however, half closed and infuriated some members as it closed its famous pit, but opened its electronic market. Uh, hashtag shock. Next up, the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, update on that. Gotcha. After more than 200 days into the war on Ukraine, President Putin ordered Russia's first mobilization since World War II. Uh, so this marks the biggest escalation of the war since the invasion in February. Um, he announced a partial mobilization, which means it could co up extra reserves. At the moment, it's st- looking to start around 300,000. Now, what does this mean for the markets? Well, um, we know the 120-day grain treaty deal hasn't expired yet, but that probably means it may not continue. Uh, this could just bring again the limitations to grain exports from Ukraine, uh, more problems for the agriculture sector, especially third world economies. This will also mean more or continued sanctions, meaning more oil and gas problems in Europe, of course, and uncertainty over Russian energy supplies. Uh, I guess the question is what will happen with the EU sanctions. We're still waiting to see that would take place in December. And also the point that this is an extra problem on top of the fact that now Europe is going into winter. Mm. So uh, all of these things are culminating in a period of time where there's going to be increased demand for these kind of products. So it, it does not look like, uh, in terms of energy prices, are going to be moving significantly down with the uh, seeming escalation of the conflict. Yeah, and and also let's bear in mind that when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, we saw multi-year highs in March. So the question is, I mean, it's a different scenario now, but what will that look like now? Um, so that's Russia. Now, China, for the first time in 30 years, Asia's developing economies are said to grow faster than China's, according to the Asian Development Bank's forecast. Uh, some banks have forecasted it to grow by less than 3% in to, uh, 2022. Uh, that's far below its official target of 5.5%. Uh, this was according to banks like Numora and Morgan Stanley and UBS as well. And most Asian economies are forecasted to grow between 4.3% to 5.3%. Uh, China's GDP in 2023 apparently could be more than $2 trillion below the level forecasted in January, according to Goldman Sachs. Even 
I mean, it's it's pretty interesting because normally uh, China bounced back from financial crisis. So uh, after the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, they quickly the GDP quickly caught up to where it was before the crisis happened. So the question is, what is the issue now? Off the top of my head, we know the zero uh, COVID policy has affected them. The property crisis, uh, slowing economic activity due to weaker external demand and a weakening currency. Have I missed anything, Chris? I think it's more that in people's minds will be China is such a large part of the world economy. And for commodities specifically, you know, you look at iron ore. It's by far the largest importer of iron ore. It's by far the largest steel producer. It's by far the largest processor of battery metals. Looking in terms of, you know, the green future, there's so many things. It's the majority of pulp is produced and used in China. So, you know, many of the markets that we cover here in and pitch on you know so much of of therefore of freight uh, of of this transportation of these goods into it of oil of tankers mm. uh, largest oil consumer so there's big concerns a big question mark which has been there since the uh, start of the pandemic or at least when it started to uh, that second period after the initial lockdown and then it went again that this is going to have a huge impact on on future growth for the world economy as china's been the one that's been driving the growth previously this is now going to potentially move to to other countries we talked about divestment away from from china people being not concerned being all in on one country well i think now you're going to be hard pressed to make an economic case not to do that mm. uh, and that, that this is going to be a, a significant challenge and one which uh, china's politicians are going to have to face head on because you know the whole of their legitimacy basically is built on the economic stability of the country now, just a few others, not as big as China and Russia, Ukraine, war, of course, but uh, the Iran nuclear deal doesn't help the situation. It's stalled. Uh, uh, there's the UN Assembly, General Assembly happening this week. The US doesn't see any breakthrough happening there. Uh, a lot of back and forth between the talks. Uh, but the question is, what does this mean for our markets? We expected the supply to uh, of oil to help if the nuclear deal was reached. And But of course, we always knew it would be hard replacing Russian oil supply. Uh, anything to add to that? Uh, it, it, it's not a, a significant factor, but I think it would have been help us help a lot of people in terms of the uh, the high price situation of, of increasing supply from for Iran but again you're seeing a, a wider movement geopolitically to tensions distrust problems and you know this all this does is cause more complex situations in terms of where supplies coming from can't come from here come from from there there's loads of reports about people you know who have been exporting Iranian oil Venezuelan oil who shouldn't have been and the ways they get around that same is true of with Russia, with the other sanctions. So without any significant breakthrough, without any end to hostilities uh, with, with Russia, then, you know, you're going to have to put up with higher prices for longer. There's there's no silver bullet for this. There's no panacea for kind of completing these, these problems and bringing down uh, prices by increasing supply. Mm. And we can't, of course, forget to make mention OPEC+. Plus. OPEC supply shortfall is now 3.5% of global oil demand. Uh, and I guess the two main factors that have been said affecting that from their perspective is underinvestment from some of their members and Western sanctions on Russian output. So the question again, what does this mean for our markets? From my oil perspective, I'm always going to go to the fact that we expect further reduction in oil supply or no increase at all. What's your take on it? Cynical me. Uh, 
how dare OPEC Plus keep prices high uh, and, and go, oh, we can't increase production at all. How, uh, oh, sorry, guys. Um, I mean, it's, it's clearly in their interest to have high prices and they're not going to be going anyway in significant movements of, of production because, you know, prices where we sit in at the moment just around, you know, $90 a barrel, if that pushes up again because of the problems, oh, you know, they're making a, a nice movement there. After all the disruption and all the problems that have been over the last few years, I think there's a lot of... Companies, you've seen that with Shell, you've seen that with BP, giving shareholders their nice uh, dividends back, uh, and that will continue. Now, with the issues with Russia, China, Iran nuclear deal, and OPEC Plus, of course, that's all coming together and adding to a possible recession. Now, we know investors this week have been bracing for another aggressive interest rate hike from the U.S. Federal Reserve. Um, They fear this could lead to the recession and reducing fuel demand so the question is what do you think is going to happen it's another latent factor there though so you you, you mentioned again uh in terms of dollar den- denominated commodities this is a factor which has nothing to do with the commodity at all in terms of fundamentals where's it going even technical training mm. this is about well actually because of the change in interest rates and the the dollar getting stronger then you're going to have to factor that into your your pricing mechanisms unfortunately and this is something which they seem to clearly indicate is going to be their their way forward for for a while this is not going to go anywhere so it's another factor to to put into that uh, mix of all the all the problems all the all the question marks of everything else this is something which you know is not necessarily a market factor but it's one which has to has to play Next, we go to Kerry Deal, who is in Barcelona for the Fast Markets Battery Raw Materials Conference. And he spoke to Peter Hanna, the Senior Price Development Manager at Fast Markets. Hi, Chris. I'm here with Peter Hanna from Fast Markets at their European Battery Raw Materials Conference 2022. And I have to say, firstly, Peter, what a remarkable job you guys have done here because the attendance has actually just blown away what I was expecting. I think over 350 people here in person, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, hi, Kerry. Great to be here on the podcast again. Um, yeah, it's been a, a really good event so far. Um, and as you say, yeah, over 350 delegates, um, which is a good turnout. Yeah, yeah, it's been fantastic. It shows the level of interest we have in this space, right? I mean, I know everyone likes to talk about EV, about ESG investing, but, uh, you know, one of the things that caught my attention in particular, I guess, has been the level of interest in risk management. But before we get to that, I, you know, put a difficult question to you. What do you think are your top three takeaways from speaking to everyone at the conference so far this week? Yeah, I think in terms of the top three takeaways, um, probably predictably still supply security. Yeah. Um, and in particular, though, not just security of supplies, no, no longer enough just to get hold of the material. It's got to be secure from a geopolitical perspective. So, you know, from the from the right kind of regions of the world. Absolutely. And also, yeah. yeah. And yeah. also from an ESG perspective. Um, so supply security, but on that sort of more granular level, I think is my, my top one. Um, the second one I'd say is the the inflation versus recession dynamic. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and how that plays out from a supply and demand perspective. And I think that's the new version of the question that we saw over the past couple of years around COVID, you know, which is it going to impact the supply side or the demand, demand side, side more. more? Exactly. And now it's whether inflation is going to push up prices or whether recession is going to start eating into demand. So yeah. you know, inflation versus recession. 
And then the third one, um, you mentioned risk management and uh, yeah, it sounds predictable, but given those um, concerns around uh, the, the, yeah. the market dynamic and the price direction, people are now taking risk management much more seriously. Yeah, I mean, I mean, given the unpredictability of the market, um, you know, we speak about risk management, we speak about how quickly the futures have been developing in this market. Uh, obviously, on the Cobalt contract, you know, again, perhaps predictably because of that extreme price movement from the peak in April down to where we are now, and then, you know, recent events driving us back up again. We've seen such an increase this year. I, I, I think it's about 330% year-on-year growth. Um, I know over 7,700 tons have traded so far this year. Uh, on that Cobalt contract, uh, to be clear, that's mainly on the CME contract, although LME also has a contract uh, on that, uh, and that's for the Cobalt Metal contract using your index. One topic we've seen, I think, discussed endlessly here is can that success be repeated on the lithium contract? And I'd, I'd love to get your views on that. Yeah, great question. Um, also, just to mention as well that SGX are uh, launching just next week um, contracts for Cobalt. Cobalt metal, cobalt hydroxide, um, and also two for lithium, so lithium yeah. carbonate and lithium hydroxide. Exactly, and and I think the uh, lithium carbonate's a very interesting one because yeah. just for our listeners who may not be aware, there are existing contracts on both CME and LME for the lithium hydroxide, and that has attracted a great deal of interest. Um, so far, it's been sort of relatively slow growth on both of those exchanges in volume. And I think there's been some question about whether and what form of lithium contract is needed now. And I've heard certainly about a dozen different suggestions at this conference since I've been speaking to people, Um, you know, some of which range from the market's not quite ready for it, but the hydroxide is the correct contract to use. Um, Some of which is lithium carbonate could be a very interesting alternative because that's a form, particularly in Asia, that the Chinese manufacturers are using uh, for their batteries, uh, and some of which is there needs to be, you know, perhaps an alternative index, um, uh, you know, that, that you guys should consider looking at a spodumene index or, uh, or even somebody suggested to me at one point, uh, a cathode yeah. contract, uh, because that combines a little bit of both. Um, do you want to go into what you've been hearing in terms of feedback on that so far? This so yeah, I think it. Um, the short answer is yes, it can be, and I, I think very much it will be uh, repeated on the lithium contracts. Um, this is now a market that at spot prices is valued at around about $50 billion, and it's only growing from there. So it's, it's gonna be a huge market. The prices are extremely volatile as we've seen, um, and I think that the big catalyst that is gonna drive um, the, the, or ignite the spark on liquidity on those uh, lithium futures contracts is the fact that um, more and more volume is becoming index linked in the physical market. So there's that real meaningful need to manage that risk. And, and, and when you say index linked, that's an interesting one, because of course you guys publish two different indices. You publish the lithium hydroxide, which is the existing contract used by CME and LME at the moment. But you know, in an exciting development, we also now know the Singapore exchange is soon to launch their own series of battery metals contracts. And that will also include a lithium carbonate contract, won't it? Yep, quite right. So yeah, just next week on the 26th of September, um, SGX is launching four new contracts, uh, two for cobalt, cobalt metal and cobalt hydroxide, and two for lithium, lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide. And yeah, the, the one that I think has got a lot of people excited is lithium carbonate, given that it is a 
Uh, it's seen as a more tradable form of lithium. Um, it's slightly more forgiving in terms of its chemistry uh, and applications, and it's also uh, more storable. It doesn't have that, that shelf life. That's right. Life. It has that shelf life, doesn't it? A little bit more shelf life, we should say. Well, hydro- <laughs> yeah. yeah, hydroxide um, degrades after you know, as, as little as six months, really. So yeah. it's, it's not a particularly tradable form, um, whereas yeah, carbonate is, is more of a, you might refer to it almost cheekily as a more of a commodity chemical. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that. I mean, one thing that's been endlessly discussed at this conference is is the future of these lithium risk management tools. Um, I think the conclusion from everyone I've spoken to is that this will happen. This this market, as you said, is simply too large and, and too in need of risk management tools. But everyone seems to have an opinion on, you know, which form, which form it should be. Should it be the hydroxide? Should it be the lithium carbonate? I've, in fact, actually heard people suggest to me that there should be a spodumene contract or even uh, a cathode contract, which combines a little bit of both. So, you know, I, I think that, as you say, the carbonate um, should be a very interesting alternative for those that find the hydroxide difficult to trade. But what opinions have you heard so far in terms of the form? Have you heard a consensus that, you know, people are, are looking towards this carbonate or? Yeah, sure. I think people expect um, carbonate might be the form to take liquidity early on. Um, but over the longer term, both uh, lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide will very much require their own uh, distinct pricing and risk management tools. Um, you mentioned spodumene. There is potential as well for um, that upstream end of the industry yeah. to, to have its own standalone pricing and, and uh, mechanisms. I think once you go downstream, though, to um, the cathodes, there's not really much trade of that material. I, I, it I, tends to get vertically integrated I, by that. That's it, exactly. And I think, yeah, you're, you're, you're running a danger of getting too specific. And of course, the one thing we've learned from all of the contracts that you guys produce the indices for, all of the contracts you report on, and all of these futures contracts we trade, is that you, you want to be careful about dividing potential liquidity as well. You know, the industry has to find a standard that they agree on and then happily trade that. That's so. right. Yeah, we've seen that in other markets as well. Yeah. The, the, the industry needs a sort of focus point um, to help commoditize or to an extent, um, you know, get things going in, in the early stages. Exactly, exactly. Well, again, you know, as I say, um, it's been a, a wildly successful con- uh, conference. Um, our own Jack Nathan is shortly to go on stage with you, Peter, and uh, discuss risk management strategies. Uh, we've certainly had a lot of questions about that. Um, so I think we'll leave it there for now. But uh, anyone with questions on either the lithium or the cobalt uh, contracts should contact myself at FIS or Peter Hanna at Fast Markets. Next on the podcast, and also with a Barcelona connection, we have Kieran Walsh, our pulp and paper broker here at FIS, who was in the city for our event in advance of the Europulp conference. So, Kieran, how was the event? Yeah, well, it was it was fantastic, Chris. Um, really, the weather was kind. Um, the views were spectacular. There was kind of it's a significant event for the industry as a lot of kind of agreements are done in between the cafes and, and bars of Barcelona. Um, and the event was a great success. So we sort of timed it for six o'clock so people could go and um, have dinners at, at eight and nine and so on. Um, and a fantastic cross-section of the industry was there. So we had producers, consumers, mills, um, some management consultants, but that's inevitable, I guess. Um, and yeah, so I suppose we had, well, exactly 26 attendees, um, and it was, it was a big success, a really sort of a flag in the sand for, for FIS, and then we were very visible in and around Barcelona that week. So great venue, Le Meridian's Terrace had 
afforded excellent views of Barcelona and um, we dodged the rain by about half an hour, which so couldn't have gone better, really. It's uh, a jealousy of everyone else. I mean, it's hard to get a bad view of Barcelona having uh, been not too long ago. It's a, a great city to be in. And um, in terms of the market, this is obviously something which has been fairly new. Norexico, the exchange is fairly new. And I guess just to start a bit more of a kind of reminder in terms of the, the things which FIS can offer in this in this market. Sure. So we can offer cash settled swaps, which are based predominantly on the fast market picks indices. Um Cash Settle gives the sort of flexibility for, without the sort of hassle of, of physical delivery. Um, and typically these indices are the ones that sort of physical deals are, are struck and basis to. So, yeah, obviously on Norexico, which we have a, a joint venture with and work very closely with. And then also in, in the OTC market, where I guess historically has had more market share than, than the exchange. And like a lot of the other markets here in terms of FRS, in terms of the, the commodities covered, there's, um, of course, a, this is developed off the back of a physical market and there is a, a, a need, uh, an opportunity to here to hedge. And I don't know if you kind of elaborate a little bit more for people who've never kind of experienced that. Well, you just trade the commodity and the price goes up, price goes up, it goes down, it goes down. But there's something you can do about that. Absolutely. I mean, particularly in, in the pulp market, um, we've had the last three years have been the most volatile ever. Prices are at historic highs, and traditionally the market has um, engaged in fixed price agreement, where where basically a supplier or a pulp producer would agree with a mill a price for for twelve months or so. Now this is broken down because of this volatility. Producers aren't offering these agreements anymore. And effectively, there's there's a need to defend your operating margin. Basically, if you're if you're constantly exposed to spot price and it jumps hundred dollars or drops two hundred, um, your operating margin is unpredictable and and you know fr- frankly kind of unacceptable to a lot of CFOs and shareholders. Equally, I mean, another good reason to hedge if you're a producer, and you know, a number of them do, is basically being able to offer a fixed price to their customers. So it's a competitive advantage. There's a kind of commercial incentive there for them to do that. Um, and of course, if you're buying buying pulp, making toilet paper or graphic paper or whatever it might be, you know, you you want to know how much it's going to cost you in twelve or twenty four months. Um, otherwise, things can get pretty hairy pretty quickly and, and we've seen that across all, all commodities energy and and so on over the last couple of years but um again this is an industry that's sort of crying out for for stability and and some predictability and a situation where you've had an event which no one could predict all the things that happened with the pandemic and the increasing people exactly. buying stuff online cardboard obviously went through the roof demand I mean, you know talking about that volatility yes, exactly i mean you had the sort of hilarious scenes of people hoarding toilet paper and and again you know again OCC so recycled paper a cardboard effectively so and yeah it's um demand skyrocketed but equally I guess as kind of a macro indicator pulp and papers a really good sort of bellwether I mean if you think about your your trip to you know even McDonald's say there's a box for the burger there's tissues there's a you know cardboard um drinks carton and um so it's again demand can fall as quickly as it rises basically it um the you know 
volatility is, is something that isn't helpful if you're trying to, to have stable growth and, and profit margins. Or something which could correlate quite nicely with con- consumer spending, I guess. Absolutely. Is the point so again, you think about, you know, buying a pair of trainers. I mean, there's going to be tissue in the box. There's a box, probably another box if you've ordered it online. So you can, you can see how it is a, a, a really good bellwether for consumer confidence. And then moving on to you know, who are these people who are going to be involved in this market who would, you know, maybe they're listening in and going, well, I'm involved in that industry. It, should I be uh, one of those ones which are actually involved in this market or, or not? Or who are those main people who are, who are currently uh, your So the main kind main of contacts? actors in the market would be pulp producers. So as you can imagine, you have quite a few of those in Scandinavia where they have lots of lovely spruce and pine. Um, Iberia, where they, they grow plenty of sort of eucalyptus and also softwood as well. Um, and, you know, Latin America and, and Canada, of course, as well. So if you think about places where there are forests, you have pulp producers, um, where you have consumers or people who use paper, you have paper mills or tissue paper. Um, and then, of course, you have some other actors as well. So refuse collectors and recyclers. So some household names in there, like DS Smith or... Um, Smurf at Kappa, who'll collect cardboard, um, recycle it, and turn it into lovely new cardboard, basically. Um, and then, again, banks would be involved because you know their customers are are some of these these people as well. So offering kind of hedging solutions, and you have trading houses as well. So merchants who will basically be involved in every part of the of the deal. Um, and then in the pulp industry. Um, there's a number of kind of buying groups, which I suppose you could compare to cooperatives in, in the agricultural world, um, even if they're maybe not member-owned. Um, but effectively, the smaller mills will often club together and um, purchase however much pulp they need and get the economies of scale. Um, increasingly, I guess, there's the ESG element um, to... Pulp. I mean, it's it's a, a huge carbon sink, and again, for every tree that's cut down, they plant seven more, f- mostly, I think. Um, and a and a growing tree captures carbon once. Um, so we have some some of the buy side, your traditional kind of hedge funds who are beginning to look and and show interest in that. Um, again, perhaps it's not as advanced as maybe the the carbon market, but certainly there's there's interest in. It from that perspective and then there's two types of market you can obviously you've alluded to here obviously there's norexco uh, the cleared side and obviously the otc which both both are offered here correct yes yeah, so we, we can provide liquidity in both so listed obviously you know you kind of have the negligible credit risk of, of trading on a public exchange um and there's the advantage um, for the industry, which has had some um, investigations recently about price fixing, that if they're to kind of trade listed in a sort of free and, and kind of fair market, in, in inverted commas, um, it offsets quite a lot of the um, potential regulatory problems further down the track for them. And obviously it's a competitive advantage as well, right, if they can offer their customers a fixed price. Um, and then OTC are privately negotiated contracts. They they frequently will look very similar to the Norexico contracts. And again, the industry's kind of been using the picks and fast markets indices as, as this kind of reference point for, for these contracts for, for decades. And um, 
yeah, I mean, again, uh, the OTC obviously has more credit risk. You know, there's a higher chance of a default, but equally they're more customizable, and and again, there's potentially more optionality in in the OTC market. That at the moment there aren't any listed options for um, on Norexico. And you can obviously put the two into both markets with sleeving as well. Correct. A little bit of a yeah. So I mean, this people. is this is kind of a, a tool um, that we would use to kind of reduce credit risk, basically, or give someone who may not have a clearing account access to the exchange. A sleeve is a credit risk tool where a bank will be a counterparty to both sides of a trade. Effectively, they're institutions that are unlikely to de- to default, and um, <coughs> they'll they'll basically will face both parties in an OTC trade. Equally, if one of the counterparties didn't um, have a clearing account or access to the exchange, this is a vehicle whereby they could trade on Norexico. So kind of a, a, a middle person, a middle company who has the resources to do both. Exactly. Uh, and allow the, each side to possibly get the trade done. Exactly, and, and very unlikely to default. And then these kind of uh, these banks are part of this market, and there's there's other a- actors as well in terms of market motivations in the in the pulp market. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, again, in terms of motivations, we alluded to them earlier, but again, I mean, it's defending operation operating margins if if you're a, a mill or a paper producer, uh, and equally, you know, the same can be true for a, a pulp producer. Um, banks will obviously offer hedging solutions to their, their customers and, um, and again, seek to make a margin on that. And increasingly, as, as I mentioned before, there's, there's more, more speculators in the market. Not as many as perhaps we'd like, because certainly they'd improve liquidity, but, yeah, more and more. And the, the current market situation, uh, we have seen that amazing volatility uh, over that period of the pandemic with such increased demand um but in terms of prices we're we're near those historic highs what you you would uh be explaining this market as someone who's looking at it now and going well we're at historic highs what's the what's the kind of point in in trading there's some other metrics to be thinking about going forward now yeah look i mean again well we've kind of seen black swan in inverted commas after black swan um and there's plenty of known unknowns to to borrow a phrase from the, the former u.s secretary of state um Freight and logistics, there's always a premium on pulp. It's a dirty cargo. The ships require a a thorough cleaning, which isn't cheap. Um, And there's, you know, constant supply issues, right? You know, with with a less stable world, it's harder to ship stuff from A to B. Um, And again, I guess consumer demand, as as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a, a good bellwether of that and confidence. So if that falls off, then things things could fall pretty sharpish. Equally, again, stocks are low in imports, which could be, you know, in terms of potential upside shocks, that doesn't leave too much breathing room. So there's a lot, um, and and again, China is off, you know, inscrutable in terms of where we go with. Um, zero COVID policies and um, Xi Jinping's, you know, new election and consumer confidence there is very significant in terms of demand. So there's an, many, many known unknowns, and and obviously, you know, we've we've had three or four 
very shocking black swans over the last five years. So, you know, if you're not hedged, you, you probably should be. Yeah, there's the similar metrics to a lot of other commodities we're looking at. Absolutely. Significant impact of China. Obviously looking now at the deteriorating, if you're a somewhat pessimistic, glass half full kind yeah. of person, geopolitical picture uh, and the problems of links to that of obviously China trying to restart, kickstart again its economy driving forward to, to help the world Sure. Uh, kind of cut out uh, of this. And again, because a lot of these things, I guess, are, are priced in dollars. So it is a dollar sensitive commodity, um, you know, like a number of other things. So, yes, um, again, macroeconomics rates and, and where we see currencies going is, is also significant. Yeah. And a big part in terms of the environmental front, you have a volatile product here, which people can trade. Yes, at. absolutely. No, I mean, I think on, you know, some of the industries, um, email footers you know in some places we kind of you know you often see oh please don't print this email well in the, in the paper industry you see quite a few footers that say please do print this email but do recycle which um, I guess is yeah they, they don't want to destroy demand too much no another growing uh, part of the pulp and paper industry obviously the recycled sector rather than the uh, virgin pulp being of cutting down trees as well yes absolutely absolutely and, and again I mean they can a, a cardboard box can be recycled maybe seven or eight times before the fibers fully decay. So please do recycle. Well, that's it for the week, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening in the freight and commodity space, then sign up to our app FIS Live, or follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you'd like to give us any feedback or suggestions, remember to email us at news at freightinvestor.com. You've been hearing from Mopani and Chris. Have a good week.